Hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices to see through our fear-stricken society. It's obsessive technology. I don't want to survive. I want to live. And welcome to Navara FM here on London's finest radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Claire Hymer, and I'm delighted to be taking over the airwaves today from the brilliant James Butler for a special podcast for our Climate Focus series as part of Navara Media's Decade Project. What do we think of when we think of the good life? Well, for the past however many decades, the conventional view on what constitutes a high standard of living in affluent societies has been based on greater and greater levels of consumption more cars, more air travel, fast food, fast fashion and so on, with more raw materials being consumed currently than ever before in human history. But here's the problem. As we know only too well, the pursuit of endless growth and endless consumption is destroying the planet and deepening inequalities, as well as damaging ourselves and our ways of being. So how do we stop the impending environmental catastrophe? How can we create a movement capable of confronting it head on? And what might be the role of hedonism, pleasure and self-interest in building that movement? To discuss these questions and more, this week I've been talking with writer and philosopher Kate Soper about her new book, Post-Growth Living for an Alternative Hedonism, an urgent and passionate plea for a new and ecologically sustainable vision of the good life that makes the case that only pleasure can save the planet. So Kate, you've been writing about both the philosophy of need and consumption for some time. What led you to write this book at this political moment and how did the ideas that formed it come together? Well, in a way, they do still go back quite a long way. And right from the beginning, in fact, I have been an advocate of alternative hedonism. I think it came up in some form or other, even when I was writing the book on Marxism and the theory of need back in the 1980s. Uh, And in the main impulse behind it, I suppose, is a sense that a great deal of commentary on the environment, and particularly in recent decades on climate change, has been both alarmist, but also very focused, really, on the damage. 
And this has been right in lots of ways. It's been very focused on the damage that we have been doing to nature and uh, or recalling us to our need to re-cement our links with it and to appreciate it more and to understand um, and critique our supposedly sort of more anthropocentric leanings in, in relation to it. But rather little focus has been on um, the role of our consumption in the creation of this damage and above all on the need to transform that. So in a sense, um, I have been motivated in writing the book, and particularly so at this juncture, because a lot more was suddenly, there was an explosion of interest really in the media. Um, but I'd also been writing on alternative hedonism for a while in a variety of articles and um, contributions to edited books and so on. But I felt in a way that I still needed to uh, provide a, a more more of an overview in the form of a book around my ideas on alternative hedonism. And the opportunity came up to do that with Verso in a form that was, for me, more attractive than simply doing it as an academic book. I want to get into some of these ideas a bit more, starting with uh, consumption. So, um, you know, the problem of demand for cheap disposable goods in affluent societies has been well documented, both in terms of its huge environmental impacts and the exploitation of labour and resources, largely in the global south that comes with it. Um, and yet, you know, while in the 1990s, uh, anti-consumerism was popularized by the anti-globalization movement and particularly by Naomi Klein's bestseller, No Logo, uh, on the left today, it's, um, as you say, it's, it's quite unfashionable to, to talk about consumption at all. You know, even starting up a conversation around consumption, I can hear people on the left, people I've organized with, and, you know, even myself at certain points start to start to groan and complain about how a focus on uh, consumption, it, you know, it puts blame on the wrong people, how really we should be focused on production as the main site of struggle, because, you know, just 100 companies responsible for 70% of the global emissions, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And, you know, how there's no uh, ethical consumption under capitalism and so on. The assumption on all this being that if we just sorted out the problems of production first, then problems of consumption will just fix themselves. So, Kate, where do you think that different parts of the left and indeed the wider environmental movement have, have gone wrong on this question? And what is it that's been missing from this conversation? Well, I think uh, one of the problems has been and one of the inspirations behind my own work on this has been a sense that we're not focused enough on the possible agents of transformation of, of production. I mean, granted that we need to rethink production and eventually uh, move beyond um, the capitalist economy to a new economic order uh, more directed at a, a serious green renaissance, then, um, you know, the focus has to be on how do we actually build up a sufficient uh, support system for the transformation of the economy in that radical kind of way. And it seems to me that um, a not sufficient recognition has been given on the left to the ways in which that agent is not any longer likely or doesn't at present look likely to come from the working class or the proletariat in the more classical Marxist sense. So, in a sense, 
my engagement with alternative hedonism came out of my reluctance to say, all this has gone wrong, um, uh, this is what we need to put it right, but not to actually offer enough in the way of the politics of transition. And here, in a way that I think does break with uh, the orthodoxy on the left, uh, I've wanted to focus on the possible role of uh, concerned and obviously quite often more affluent body of consumers about the consequence of consumer culture uh, itself. One of the main distinctions of my own argument on consumption has been that we need to acknowledge that it's not only for environmental reasons that we need to change consumption, but because it's actually not very positive for, for those who are in the position to actually enjoy it. In other words, my what's distinctive about my argument is that it's, uh, it's spelling out in more detail uh, the alternative politics of prosperity we need to pursue, but above all, it's challenging the currently very entrenched view of affluent consumption as essential to well-being. In other words, I'm contesting the idealization of the consumer's lifestyle as the model of a good life. And in doing so, I'd point to the sort of downsides and more dystopian even aspects of current ways of living. I'm talking here of the domination of the work and spend spiral, the insecurity, often lifelong, but that generates ill health and stress that go with it, the time scarcity, the massive amounts of waste. Uh, and loss of community, traffic congestion and pollution, commercialization of children, their denial of access to the natural world, and so on and so forth. So I'm emphasizing these downsides. And I'm also pointing in doing so to the emergence in our own time of what I call an alternative structural feeling. I'm drawing on Raymond Williams's concept there. Uh, in other words, of a level of emerging support for other more pleasurable and greener ways of living and working. And these are, I think, you know, in a sense, they're, they're not very fully articulated. Very often the reaction to consumer culture remains quite equivocal. And as I say, I think these reactions in the first place are coming from those who are slightly better healed on the whole, who are in the position, as it were, to uh, to stand back and rethink uh, their affluent forms of consumption. And I'm not, as it were, putting blame on those who are actually much nearer to the breadline. I mean, I'm not suggesting that those with, uh, who are in the poorest sections of society are really in a position to seriously, at the moment, reconsider and green their own uh, consumption. I mean, they may be able to in certain respects, but it's a difficult ask. Whereas I think there is a, an agency, a, a more trans class potentially emerging that um, confirms in a way and begins to legitimate some of the claims I'm making about the downsides of our affluent culture and consumerist lifestyle. And that that could then act as a possible lever for change in a way that hitherto no other agent has come out in a position to do so. Uh, in other words, it could actually you know, become the basis 
for a, a sort of cultural revolution around the politics of prosperity, which could then feed into more of a mandate for more radical change. So a lot of my thinking about alternative consumption has not really been driven by, by criticism of a moral kind. It's responding, as I say, to this emergent structure of feeling, but it's also very concerned with trying to think through what might now be a more successful transitional politics. One idea that I that I really like in the book is that of uh, compensatory consumption. So the idea that the, the desire that drives a significant amount of consumption that takes place in affluent societies isn't an inherent feature of human nature, but is at least to some extent seeking to compensate for the loss of other things. So the loss of free time, uh, close personal relationships, access to nature and so on. In other words, the market sells us things to compensate for things which the market itself has taken away. Um, can you can you say a bit more about the alternative hedonist understanding of desire? Yes, you're right. I mean, I do spend a lot of time talking about the the ways in which the capitalist consumer market now has has become, you know, it's been supported in lots of ways by its provision of compensatory compensatory goods and services. I mean, I'm thinking here of fast food, for example, or of the way in which we are invited to take short, sharp sessions in the gym rather than provided with the means to walk or cycle to work. And the same thing goes for the kinds of things that have been happening in the tourist industry where we're encouraged to go for very short holidays in far-flung places to get away from it all, to... Uh, relax um, and so on. So that there is a sort of way in which um, the market has developed a compensatory um, supply system, as it were, for what it's actually denied us through the dominance of the work ethic and the long hours of work that that subjects uh, many people to and the kind of workaholic practices it also encourages. I also think, however, uh, maybe you're hinting at this too, I think, that in a larger sense, uh, one can argue, and indeed many theorists of consumption argue this, um, even those who are more supportive of the consumer culture and have lots of uh, approving things to say about it, they also tend to sort of treat it as if it were compensatory for other losses or for other forms of gratification that have not been supplied. And I suppose it's in that context and thinking through some of that larger sense in which acquisition of material things is compensating for other goods uh, um, that I that I want to kind of return to the idea of um, of, of allowing freeing us up to uh, become less acquisitive in our in our um, outlook but also to enjoy what, for want of a better word, I often refer to as more spiritual gratification. I recognise that that too, rather like my focus on consumption, is a difficult one for the left. I mean, it's not been a, a popular term, and I can understand why, because it comes loaded, I think, either with religious connotations or with a sense that we're uh, casting Jeremiah's against consumerist pleasure and um, 
and want to take everybody back to a kind of monos- monastic asceticism in their consumptions. I mean, I don't, I don't take that line. I actually think that in many ways, current consumption is overly materialistic. But I don't actually think that by going back to simpler ways of living, more supposedly natural, is the solution here. What I would like to open up through what I call the revolution in cultural politics around prosperity is more imagination to counter the the dominance and monopoly of advertising and the market on our conceptions of pleasure and and the good life. I mean, I think we could actually, I'd argue, uh, think in terms of very much more complex baroque forms of gratification that are, that are both eco-benign and do satisfy more of the spiritual needs for free time, for more engagement probably with nature, for conviviality, which I don't think is necessarily terribly encouraged, in fact, by uh, consumer culture. Um, I mean, I don't know where that would take us. I mean, we haven't ever opened up, well, not of late, at any rate, not over centuries, we opened up the space for that sort of imaginative uh, alternative. And the the dominance of advertising on the cultural imaginary of pleasure and desire is very, very blanketing, really. I mean, it's very difficult to get other kinds of versions of, of how we might live and do things into the public eye. You know, you say in the book, um, you know, you talk about a reluctance on the left to, to really imagine uh, post-capitalism ways of living. Can you describe a bit more about what this alternative hedonist world you're proposing would look like and also what what precedents there are for the kind of societies that you're describing yes i mean for me it would be very much based on a reduction of work and a removal of of work from the kind of central role it's occupied in our lives instead of lamenting the end of work which is likely in any case to come about in the near future because of uh, the technological um, developments and the transfer to automation. So many more people are likely to put out work. But instead of lamenting the end of work, I think we need to develop an alternative hedonist case for seizing the opportunity uh, that that would offer to move from a a more work-rooted understanding of identity purpose and self-fulfillment to one that is more life-centered and revolves around self-chosen ways of spending time and energy. And that approach, I think, does itself contrast with some of the more sort of tech-utopian ways of thinking of some recent writers on the left who trust to digital technology and automation to allow us to continue with a more conventionally consumerist lifestyle. But I would argue, um, in contrast to that, that, uh, that we need a more humanly oriented and um, a more compelling political imaginary for a post-work order. Uh, that there's a potential, if you like, for a less techno-driven and intensive uh, work culture to reinstate some earlier ways of doing and making things and counter to... Uh, the usual dismissal by Marxist cultural critics, I here defend sort of a return, if you like, to some artisanal methods as a possible contribution. In fact, I suggest that we might actually want to think in terms of 
moving to more hybrid ways of working and living, where we would have, as it were, the best of both worlds. We could draw on very smart technologies for provision of energy in some forms of transport, some aspects of agriculture, and above all, perhaps for medicine. Uh, well, nonetheless, if we were in a position to escape the dominance of the law of value and the constraints that place was on labour, having to produce as much as possible in the least possible time, then we could also go back in other respects to slower and more sustainable ways of providing things and services so that we sort of had mixed modes of, uh, of working. And that would allow, I think, for traditional methods and more sustainable um, production to, um, they're more compatible, I would say, with the new economic arrangements that might be brought in with communally owned enterprises and cooperatives, in which, as I say, labour would not be subject to the imperative of maximising product by reducing labour time. And I think that that more complex vision of the potential satisfactions of work could well be reclaimed as a kind of integral component of a more avant-garde political imaginary rather than dismissed as a, a sort of folk politics stuck in pre-modern social relations. It would need, um, without uh, question, the support of some kind of citizen's income or, or UBI. And it would also, I think, if we really are going to provide more free time and to think in terms of a future in which people will be in a position to work less and, and provide more for themselves, I think they will need to rethink the whole provisioning of education, which at the moment, of course, more than ever, perhaps, is very vocationally oriented. It's essentially conceived as a preparation for work. You know, the, the whole outcome of education is to provide you with a job. And we've seen as a consequence of that the erosion of humanities education and, um, and the, you know, the end of music teaching in schools and things of this kind. I think that would probably need to be reversed, that we'd need to think in terms of education as a preparation for life as much as for any job we were going to go into. Um, and that that would mean probably a return to more humanities-based learning. I mean, I, I don't think we can expect people to be in a position to enjoy the amount of free time that could, in principle, be released uh, if we move to a more basically materialist, um, a more reproductive materialist way of satisfying basic needs and release the free time. Accordingly, I don't think we could expect people to be in a position to enjoy it unless they had more of that form of education. I mean, I do believe that there's a real democratic deficit here in the way that we've treated people as essentially, you know, to be produced, particularly in certain echelons, simply for work. I actually want to stay on this um, this discussion of work for a moment because, you know, I think that the, the arguments that you make in the book will be familiar to a lot of people on the left, you know, that essentially in the face of uh, the climate crisis and the huge environmental obstacles to growth, amongst many other reasons, we need to get serious about liberation from work and reducing working time. Uh, but there's a tension in left-wing discourses around work, I think, namely that 
you know, while lots of forms of work are actively destructive and they exist solely for the purposes of valorizing capital, uh, as the workers' movement has always recognized, it's it's also the case that there are kinds of work that are, are socially necessary, socially useful, and do crucially offer dignity to the people that do them. And what happens is that the left, I think, often fails to offer an account for what it actually feels like to do something that's socially necessary. Um, and work that is dignified and valuable gets pathologized. Uh, so I was wondering, could you could you lay out a bit more what what kinds of dignified and necessary work do you imagine existing within a world led by the principles of alternative hedonism? Well, I suppose I, I certainly think that um, that quite a lot of of the work of of caring and provision of Medical services, for example, would fall into that category. I mean, some of the tech utopian thinking has suggested that we could move to a situation in a post-work society where those kinds of works could be performed by drones or robots. And the argument has sometimes been used that if people, you know, they might fare better with a with a, a sort of ever-smiling robot rather than a grumpy care worker and so on. But I think also, I mean, relevant here is I think what the pandemic has exposed in the way of the, the ways in which our society currently devalues and um, pays uh, the lowest wages to those who have proved to be most essential to our, when, our well-being. I mean, I'm thinking here of the medical staff and care workers and those who have been delivering uh, essential goods and those who have kept essential services going and so on, they, they are much less parasitical in a way than the financial class. And yet, of course, they are, the, they are least well-paid and least valued in, uh, currently. Whereas I think what would happen in a society more along the lines that I've been trying to sketch um, would be that that would be reversed. That these people would be seen as 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 the valuable members of society most needed, and so on. Um, and that that would enhance their own sense of job satisfaction as well. And I, I agree with you that on the whole, I think the left has not been very good at recognizing that that um, not only is is work certain kinds of work at any rate intrinsically satisfy, but that we shouldn't be dedicated entirely to getting rid of it. I mean, again, I hear dissent from the idea that we should, in a post-work world, move to an entirely automated way of living, even if that were technically possible, which I think it probably is not. I mean, I tend to agree also with Andre Gort still, who was one of the most seminal thinkers on these issues, uh, that um, there will always be some some boring forms of work that need to be done, and uh, and then there will be other forms of work that are more intrinsically satisfying, which people will prefer to do as well, rather than even if they could be offloaded to automated systems of one kind or another, they would still prefer to do them. And I think there are other. Uh, I mean, one can think of a number of areas too. For example, in agriculture where moving away from very intensive agribusiness modes will actually uh, allow for uh, a more work-intensive kinds of ways of uh, engaging with the land and with 
for natural processes and so on, which could bring a great deal of satisfaction. I mean, why do everything by machines unless we, you know, if we're not any longer caught up in a, in a dynamic of capitalism, it insists that everything's done in the fastest possible time and with least expenditure on human labour. I mean, all these, all those other aspects of, of work, I think, could actually be opened up and, uh, and, and returned in a way. I mean, I know it looks as if one's kind of going backwards in some ways. It's just, it's just like a form of sort of anti-progressivism, even a form of nostalgia or what possibly. But I think, I think we need to actually rethink our rejection on the left of those forms of nostalgia. I argue for what I call an avant-garde nostalgia, which actually does look to ways of doing things in the past, both as, as providing work that is, as you say, intrinsically satisfying, but also as, as offering more sustainable and kinder and more benign ways of living and working. I actually want to, um, to circle back to this point about tech utopianism, um, which, you, which, you, which you see yourself as, um, you definitely you know, see us setting yourself against. So, you know, obviously there's a lot, of, a lot of talk on the left at the moment about the concept of luxury, whether that's uh, fully automated luxury communism, as Navarra Media's very own Aaron Bastani puts it, or George Monbiot's idea of public luxury. Why have you chosen instead to call this new pol- politics of prosperity that you propose alternative hedonism? And do you think that it's fair to say that luxury itself is a capitalist concept? I don't think luxury is, is necessarily a capitalist concept but of course it's become very closely linked to very affluent and often very environmentally vandalizing forms of consumption so I think you know we would need to kind of um, rethink it to, to have a sort of conceptual transformation around the idea of luxury without to you know still feature in our outlook I suppose more generally I think a luxury communism and a, is committed, it suggests, to abundance, which I think, and the abundance they seem to have in mind, is viewed as enabling more of the current lifestyle to be provided more equally and economically uh, with technology yoked to ensuring environmentally preferable and cheaper to the user modes of doing what we already do. Um, rather than reimagined as potentially allowing not just for greener, but also for more convivial and considerate provision. So I, I think my quarrel with luxury communism, insofar as I have it, I mean, it's obviously not about the need to move to a post-capitalist economic order, but it is about the way in which they still seem to remain committed to the consumer culture as generated by capitalism, or more than more than I would argue we should be or need to be. Um, for example, I think they're still caught in thinking about the you know transport in terms of the shift to electric cars, which of course will, in the transitional period, be part of the uh, essential moves of a, of a greener future. But I think we should also be thinking ultimately in terms of the moving away from a car culture mindset and putting much more emphasis on 
on other other modes of transport. And then I think you know the the authors of the um, inventing the future right seem very committed to space travel and um, luxury <laughs> trips of, of that kind for everybody, which I, I find a little bizarre, I have to say. I mean, it seems to me that these are very conventional, rather too tech-oriented, boyish kinds of aspirations. So I, and there is a way in which I think we could rethink luxury in terms of inventive ways of allowing ourselves... I mean, you know, we need... We need to open up the imagination about what would be a more luxurious way of living. Maybe luxury here has to be given more of a non-materialistic sense that it's acquired. I mean, we could be luxurious in time, I imagine. We could be luxurious in the amount of sharing and other forms of convivial living that we went in for. We could be luxurious in the amount of uh, engagement and access that we had with the natural world. And particularly, I think that might be important for children instead of being, as it were, brainwashed almost by the market society into becoming our future consumers. They could be given the luxury of uh, spending a great deal more time outdoors. I mean, I I read the other day that 40% of children never have any outdoor play. I mean, I can't believe that that's actually true, but but if it is, it's very uh, it's very distressing, I think. And that it would be a luxury to release them from that. It would also, for me, be a luxury to be able to um, to cycle unmolested as much by cars. It it would be a luxury to be able to travel more slowly. I mean, I don't I don't think we have to be caught up in quite such a materialistic. Um, high-tech, acquisitive mode of thinking about luxury. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, my kind of struggle with the word luxury is that I think there's something inherent within it about, um, you know, something is only luxurious if it's something that only a very limited and exclusive group of people have. Um, and obviously that's that's not the kind of, um, that's that's not what you see alternative hedonism as being about. No, not at all, no. I mean, I absolutely agree that... Any of those luxuries that I'm kind of uh, holding out here would be, uh, you know, they wouldn't work as luxuries if they were only available to some. Um, and that's not to say that everybody would want to indulge in them all, but, um, you know, they, no, I mean, I think, as I've said right from the beginning, I think much greater equality um, within nations and, um, and globally is absolutely essential to a sustainable way of living and certainly to an alternative hedonist way of living it, it goes without question that we can't do this without thinking of rethinking luxury if we are going to rethink luxury in terms of its availability more universally to everybody but at the moment what we have is a situation in which not only do you know a tiny elite of super wealthy own most of the have most of the equity and most of the money. They also are amongst some of the most environmentally vandalising. I mean, the other day we were told that 1% of people are producing 70% of the aviation emission. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's very important, I would agree with you, that if we are going to, you know, to rethink and advocate luxury and, you know, very um, 
you know, provisionings of a, of a, of a more kind of centrally enriching kind, that might be a better way of putting it, then we have to make clear that they are going to be available for everyone. I want to stay on the, the specific terms that you use in the book for just a moment because because I think that they're important. You you also choose to frame your position um, on growth in the book as one of, of, of post growth rather than degrowth. Uh, do you see a difference between the two? And and I guess do you think that the latter has been unfairly maligned by much of the climate left? I, I mean, to be honest, uh, we had a terrible time, me and Verso, trying to decide on uh, what to call this book. I didn't want to have alternative hedonism as the main title um, because I, it's, it's a difficult concept and it, 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 it kind of invites um, a lot of talk about what do you mean by hedonism, you know, whereas I was using it as a, in a very general way. And I wanted to convey the way in which uh, the book is primarily concerned with an alternative politics of prosperity and the transition to a degrowth uh, economy as being um, an essential aspect of the realisation of that kind of uh, prosperity. Uh, so really, I suppose, I don't, I'm not insisting on a huge division between the meaning between degrowth and post-growth here. I mean, for me, post-growth probably signals that this is something that we transition towards. Degrowth, uh, I think, is a commitment to that transition. I mean, I don't think that we can move overnight, as it were, to a degrowth um, or post-growth economy. Uh, on the contrary, we will need to, uh, it can't be done overnight, but, you know, it, we will need to think in terms of the transitional process. But as part of that transitional process, I think we also need to recognise that we are, the commitment to endless growth, the shibboleth of, uh, GDP and things of this kind need to be rethought, and that are uh, you know where we're travelling to, as it were, is eventually to a, a post-growth economy, a one that is is much much less focused on on prosperity as defined by GDP and economic expansion, and also probably less kind of caught up with the notion of uh, very high tech innovations all the time. That's how I think I, if anything, if there's any sort of difference here, degrowth is a process towards a more post-growth um, economy and way of living. But you also ask uh, whether I share in the uh, dismissal, as it were, of degrowth. Are uh, you talking here about the way it's been sort of um, rejected in, in a way as a kind of folk politics? That and then also the fact that I think that um, I kind of think there's a bit of a framing issue here with degrowth in that uh, I guess, you know, people would often, you know, especially with the, the limited time that we've got to solve the climate crisis, the idea that we can um, shift people's perceptions of growth actually not being a good thing um, means that kind of you know, this, this idea of degrowth is trying to it, it, it immediately seem, you know, might seem to like lots of people like this is it's, it's, it's a bad framing it seems like something which we definitely definitely wouldn't want it puts people off you mean well exactly exactly yeah it puts people off and yeah do, do, do you see this as a problem yes it's a very big problem because i think that the moment you start talking about degrowth people think that you're you're no longer living in the real in the world of real politics 
um, I think Alf Hornbrook uh, makes the point, and I quote him in the book, uh, uh, to the effect that if any any sort of mainstream politician trying to kind of commit to some sort of degrowth or even use the, the you know see it as a long term aspiration would would not actually you know be taken seriously um, currently. I mean, there wasn't that long ago, however, and this is worth bearing in mind, where people would almost reach for the straitjacket if you started talking about it. I mean, I think it has come more, it is slowly making its way, as indeed, you know, greening the economy has made its way. You know, I mean, we were talking about this, you know, way back in the 60s, 70s, and it's only, you know, has come to fruition now. We do, I think, need to remain committed to a degrowth uh, discourse of some kind, even while recognizing how off-putting it can be, because I think that is where ultimately we we need to be heading. It is now increasingly recognized um, across uh, a great deal, many experts, and uh, talked about in the academy, where you know there's a huge growth in academic literature on degrowth economics now. That, that this could be a coming future and, you know, it won't, it won't actually help if we don't actually talk about it. And so, I mean, while recognizing the problems, um, I think we should also be aware that we need to critique the continuous, um, denial of, of its importance, the ridicule that it comes in for is uh, actually could well within the next 50 years look, you know, could look as if that itself was anachronistic. And, you know, I think it, it, it will become more mainstream. I think it will actually over time be taken more seriously. I want to turn now to the current political moment and how we get to this new politics of prosperity that you describe. So 2019 saw climate breakdown being taken up as a concern on a scale that we haven't really seen before. And yet understandings of the good life have remained pretty orthodox. So, you know, as you acknowledge at the very end of the book, the kind of cultural shift that you're describing is comparable in scale to that brought about and still being won by the feminist movement as just one example, in that it's as fundamental a shift as reconceptualizing gender and gender relations. So considering that this cultural shift has to happen in a far, far shorter time frame than feminist movements have had to even start to achieve their goals, simply due to the ever narrowing window that we've got to address the climate crisis, and coupled with the fact that, you know, unfortunately, it also looks like the left is uh, not going to be able to take state power anytime soon. Um, what are the vehicles that we've got for a change of this scale, do you think? I mean, it's not looking great, I have to admit. Um, it's difficult to be very optimistic. Um, I mean, I suppose we should be take some heart from the fact that, that it's impossible, wherever you are on the political spectrum now, to not actually make green thinking and some form of green renewal central to your political and economic Outlook. That is itself a change that's taken place over a decade, two decades. And I think as the consequences of climate change and the sixth extinction of um, other creatures and uh, the problems of soil erosion and, I mean, the whole gamut of environmental 
you know, catastrophes that are accumulating become more pressing and we have more kind of consequences of them and fires and floods and maybe more pandemics and so on, uh, we will begin to see um, you know, things things could hot up, as it were, in, in terms of the political responses as well as in terms of the climate. In the meantime, I think probably what we need is to keep advocating uh, a cultural politics as the condition of the eventual success politically. In other words, that that's without a cultural politics of change, we're not going to see a political formation committed to that kind of radical change. And it would probably need, in any case, to be um, transnational. I mean, it probably is very difficult to have, even if we did have a political party or formation of parties that was committed to the kinds of changes that are necessary uh, to really be effective, uh, within the time scale that we have. But I, I still also think that we're not even going to get there unless we have more of a cultural revolution. In evolving that, I think we should try to draw on the existing uh, campaigns and movements that we have and possibly bring them into more of an agreement about the need to present, to get a more positive way of thinking about the post-consumerist, post-growth order. I mean, one of the aspects of my argument, which I, I, you know, I feel is most distinctive to it, is the emphasis on the pleasures of living differently rather than simply the need to. You know, I would argue that even if, you know, our consumerist way of living were sustainable indefinitely and available to everyone, it still wouldn't necessarily be uh, to the advantage of of, of all of us. Um, that it, you know, that there are these less pleasurable aspects of it, um, and that it's bad for health. It says, you know, um, in, in lots of ways and so on. So. I think we need to emphasise, we need to open up, if we can, the space for, for rethinking uh, human satisfaction and well-being outside the, the ways in which it's been um, projected by dominant consumer culture and advertisement. That, that would help, I think. We need to seduce people into thinking in terms of alternatives and not just panic them about climate change. But it's difficult to be hugely optimistic. You know, we're, we're thinking here really in terms of building a new hegemonic movement around the rethinking of prosperity, the rethinking of the time expenditure, the rethinking also of ourselves as not, simply consumers. I mean, we've had decades in which across the right-left divide, um, we've been persuaded by governments into thinking of ourselves primarily as consumers, um, even as consumers when it comes to welfare services, not just the goods on the market. That needs reversing. Um, I think we need to begin to rethink ourselves as accountable to our wider culture, as the site of uh, a Republican spirit and not simply, you know, in other words, we need to take up the citizenly aspect of our consumption. Not everyone is best, is well placed to do that, but 
as many of us as are, and you should do so, I think. I mean, I think also people involved in um, climate change campaigns, Extinction Rebellion, school children, they, there are still, it seems to me, some tensions and contradictions here between the way in which um, they are thinking of the problem as essentially to be managed by them. You know, I think there's a them be us kind of way of thinking that still tends to predominate. I find it um, funny that you mentioned a little earlier that, you know, you don't actually think there's a lot to be to be optimistic about um, when it comes to all this, because I actually found reading the book very refreshing precisely because it it did seem quite optimistic about um, both tackling the climate crisis and the world that we could create beyond it. So to wrap up, Kate, um, tell us, do you think that there is cause for optimism? Yes, I do. I mean, this has come up quite a bit, actually, in recent sort of Zoom interviews and stuff that I've been doing. I mean, people have said, you know, how, how, how optimistic are you? And I mean, I... I actually take some heart from the what's going on now, particularly among younger people. I, I suspect that they are not going to be as complacent about continuing with the current ways of living as, as you know, my own generation has been. Um, for a variety of reasons. I think, I think they're very frightened about climate change. I think they're um, very concerned about the absolutely gaping inequalities now that we have created with our current ways of organising the global economy. Um, And I think they are more aware now of the downsides of the so-called affluent good life. Um, So all these... All these uh, factors, I think, are coming together to create more of a sense that something quite radical really needs to shift. And I'm hopeful that, you know, that that will continue to to be the case and expand and and prove more culturally influential than, than hitherto. So in that sense, I think there is a cause for optimism. I think one of the reasons we've been very pessimistic of late has also been to do with the rise of the new right and its particular forms of nationalism and chauvinism and misogyny. But I'm not sure how long that has to continue. I mean, I've, I've sometimes thought that the, that the right, and I'm thinking here in particular of, of Trump and Bolsonaro, also perhaps of our own government here, uh, but there's a, there's many others who represent that sort of extremist right wing nationalist uh, populist uh, outlook. That we could take a bit of heart from the idea that it perhaps is having its final fling. Um, in other words, that its flame, like the proverbial candle, <laughs> burns brightest when it's about to go out. Um, I'm not that hopeful about that, but it's it's a thought, you know. I think that we are able to think, you know, at least with some optimism of the will, yes, certainly. Um, but also maybe a certain amount of optimism of the intellect as well now, because I think people are beginning to to take very seriously 
how catastrophic. That they're beginning to recognise, I think, that if we don't do something about it, the times that we're in, of a more radical kind now that we are going to end up with ecological barbarism. And the, I think the anxiety for me is not, you know, that we are sort of being extinguished because of nature being extinguished. I think it's much more likely to generate very, very, very troubling and conflictual developments socially, um, particularly in the form of massive migrations of people that will be caused otherwise um in the you know in the way of uh, environmental refugees the uh the forms of conflict that could generate possibly even terminal forms of warfare so i you know i think i think the future looks alarming in the extreme and i think that that is being sufficiently recognized now for us to have some optimism about the world changing. Just to end, uh, is there anything that we've th- we've missed that you think that we should talk about? We haven't talked much about the need to abandon, as I see it, the entrenched commitment to viewing economic expansion as an essential vehicle of progress and modernity. Um, I've suggested, obviously, that capitalist-driven consumption uh, in affluent cultures can't any longer provide the model of a good life and that we need to view it as a major constraint on global prosperity and long-term planetary survival. But I haven't said much about how I see the that as involving a move from what I call chronocentric views, um, in other words, views that see, um, that only look to the future, as it were, as sources of progress, I haven't said that much about how we might look to more traditional cultures and they're often much more sustainable ways of producing as a better model. And in the book, I explore the conceptual shifts um, that that new way of thinking would require if we had to cut the link between economic advance and social and uh, cultural advance. One of the things I, I sort of emphasise there is that in the process of um, of making that kind of shift, we would need to, well, it, that it has something akin to early romantic antipathies to modernity with their focus on commerce and material values, and, but an alternative hedonist approach to modernity and its representation would avoid the Puritanism and it would have to avoid the Puritanism and social conservatism, the patrician and patriarchal politics, and very often bigoted religious outlook associated with traditionalist cultures of resistance. So the point here, I think, is to reject endless economic growth while also saying, you know, the condition of doing that is that we also resist cultural backwardness. And, that, and through that kind of conceptual move, to avoid the idea that um, we can only move forward with a emancipated cultural agenda on the back of endless economic progress. I mean, that's just one aspect of my, you know, anti-concentric way of thinking that we hadn't said much about. What I do in the book is sort of illustrated a bit by by reference to Ireland, which, according, for example, to some nationalist thinking, notably Eamon de Valera and Yeats and one or two others, 
you know, thought of Ireland as in a kind of spiritual advance of its materialistic colonizer on the mainland. But that sense of Ireland as escaping the general corruption of secular modernity also, of course, went together with Catholicism and extremely regressive views on the place of women, of gender, of sexuality, and so on. So other thinkers and writers, notably James Joyce himself, were keen, as it were, to point that out. And, uh, and so we have a kind of tension here uh, where we need to maintain the critique of commercial values uh, and its materialism, but avoid, um, you know, make clear that we completely dissent from these forms of cultural aggression that, on the whole, in those more traditional cultures, have always gone together with it. And I think that if we're going to, as it were, critique the way in which the metropolitan cultures still think of development in terms of the expansion of a consumerist, growth-driven, tech-driven culture, if we're going to critique that adequately, we need to make clear that in returning to other and less economically driven kinds of ways of providing for material goods and services, we are also uh, still moving forward with a more emancipated um, cultural agenda. So it's a sort of unhooking too. I'm recommending a cultural politics that freed of the patrician and patriarchal relations of pre-modern societies while nonetheless seeking to restore in a sort of transmuted form some of the fulfilling and sustainable aspects of earlier ways of living. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I definitely think that's, that'll be a useful addition. Thank you so much, Kate. We really, yeah, we really, really appreciate you you, you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I was really um, um, quite moved. <laughs> That's it for this week. Just a reminder that Navarra Media's Climate Focus will be running until the end of next week. So do make sure to head over to our website and keep your eyes peeled for articles, videos and podcasts on everything from green colonialism in the Arctic to how to blow up a pipeline. And in case you're not aware, this month at Navarra Media, we're also running a fundraiser with the aim of raising an extra £5,000 in monthly donations by Christmas. Everything we do at Navarra is funded by our supporters. So please, if you value our work, please do consider giving us a monthly donation at navarramedia.com forward slash support. Thanks again to Kate for joining me and to James Butler for his masterful editing of this podcast. You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. This has been Navarra FM and James will be back on your airwaves next week with more climate content. I've been Claire Heimer. Bye-bye.